0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. America has long been the world leader in scientific research and technological innovation, But we may be taking this position for granted. U.S. federal R&D spending has fallen by two-thirds since the 1960s as a share of GDP. Not long after that, U.S. productivity growth downshifted and has pretty much stayed there, other than for the internet boom of the 1990s. Now, many observers have proposed expanding public support for science research as a way to boost growth, reduce inequality, and accelerate technological progress. But these proposals differ in many ways. For instance. Should we prioritize basic research or applied research? How should this funding be distributed geographically? And how valuable are mission-oriented projects like the space program? I'm delighted to introduce today's panel. We have Jonathan Gruber, a Ford Professor of Economics at MIT, and also Director of the Healthcare Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. In 2019, he, along with Simon Johnson, was co-author of Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Tony Mills is the director of the R Street Institute Science Policy Program, which aims to equip policymakers with scientific expertise to advance public policies that stimulate innovation. Margaret O'Mara is the Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington, as well as a contributing opinion editor at the New York Times. She is also author of the 2019 book, The Code Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, out in paperback yesterday. And Brett Swanson, a visiting fellow here at AI, where he focuses on the impact of technology on the US economy, telecommunications, and internet regulation. He's also president of Entropy Economics. Uh, Before we begin about where we need to go and what we need to do to, to get there, I want to spend at least a few minutes on a bit of his history, which I want to start with Margaret. What has been up till now sort of the American formula historically for scientific? And technological progress? What's been the American system that's worked for us?
1: I think the short answer is the federal government threw a lot of money in technologists and scientists direction and got out of the way. And the way that I, I, there's a real contrast to other industrialized nations. There's, there was a massive surge of spending starting with World War II with the Manhattan Project continuing in the Cold War, but it was, it was partially direct inside the government right growing government agencies government research agencies but also it was money that flowed from public coffers to universities public and private to private industry from massive defense contractors aerospace giants like boeing and lockheed to also smaller um, and in some cases startup companies some of the pioneer Silicon Valley startups that kind of brought the silicon semiconductors to the valley had a significant book of business from the military and from the government generally, and that started the flywheel going.
0: Uh, would you call with the phrase, uh, again, anyone can answer this, the, the, the phrase industrial policy gets tossed around, uh, which kind of evokes images of a bunch of bureaucrats at the Department of uh, Energy, Department of Defense, sort of picking companies and picking sectors. Was that industrial policy uh, coming out of World War II that we saw?
2: You know, I I, I would jump in and say, it, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a term of art. Uh, I would say no, because uh, industrial policy implies more guidance. As Margaret said, it was really a general expansion. I think it was a little bit more hands-on than Margaret says, in the sense that what essentially what it was, was targeted goals, but with a lot of extra spending. So a great example, is what happened when the government wanted to invent a uh, mind-sniffing robot, a mind-finding robot. It gave a bunch of money to a small Cambridge company called iRobot. It gave them a lot of money. They invented it and realized they had on their hands something that became the Zumba. Uh, so it was directed in the sense that they had a grant to do something. It's just that that money then spilled over. So I think it was a lot of money. There was some direction, but I wouldn't call industrial policy because it wasn't about trying to protect a nascent industry it wasn't about favoring one industry or another. It was about spending money to get stuff the government wanted to fight the war, cold or hot.
3: Yeah, and, I would... Go so I was gonna just jump in and say, I sort of expanding on that, I, I think Margaret mentioned World War II as a pivot point. I think one of the keys there, uh, you know, the famous report that Vinnie Bush, FDR's de uh, facto science advisor wrote, uh, he wrote a, you know, The Endless Frontier. Um, he sort of laid the, f- the framework for a lot of post-war science policy, one of his key insights I think um, was recognizing that the large scale organized research efforts during the war were successful in part because of scientific discoveries, many of which were made before the war. So there was a kind of, there were deep reservoirs of scientific knowledge that could be drawn on. Uh, You can see that in the development of radar, nuclear uh, bomb, uh, even computing. Um, And so what he wanted to do, he wasn't successful in his efforts to get, you know, science policy as he as he wanted it in every respect but one of his key insights was um, something similar to what Margaret said support without control wanting the government to ha- have an assertive role in science policy but to not uh, direct uh, the to control the direction of that research and so here I think it's useful to distinguish between technological development and scientific research where maybe the case that you, you know in, in, in uh, technological research you have a particular goal um, along the lines uh, that Dr. Gruber was, was outlining before, but in a lot of the kinds of scientific breakthroughs that were key to innovation, um, they they come from unexpected places um, and typically by researchers choosing their own uh, directions. And so that was, I think, part of the the, 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 the part of the key ingredients um, there. Um, which uh, you know we, you know, we can talk more about the present uh, perhaps later. That's one of the key ingredients that I worry we're uh, we're now overlooking. Um,
0: we we know we know about you know the atom bomb and we and you mentioned radar and we know about the Apollo uh, program but did a lot of the and the, and fifties and sixties were very productive decades but were they productive decades because uh, of a lot of government spending uh, on research. Or how much that was sort of built on what happened in the 20s and 30s? There's been research that said the 20s and 30s were actually really innovative, productive decades for the United States. And how much of the success in the 50s and 60s was built on kind of that pre-war uh, innovation versus actually what was going on during those decades? Uh,
3: well, I, I, I don't want to you know, dominate here, but I, you know, I have my own views about that. I think, I mean, it depends on, we, on what we mean exactly. I think. Um, But I think it's fair to say that some of the key scientific discoveries before the war um, did provide reservoirs that we're still drawing on. Um, Just to to name the most obvious examples, quantum physics, which was developed uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, Think about electromagnetism beginning all the way in the 19th century. Um, You wouldn't have had uh, radar developed in the 20th century without the, the, the kind of backlog of scientific research done uh in, uh in studying electromagnetic waves for example uh and computing is another example um even quantum computing uh depends in a lot of its key formal architecture on insights from mathematical logic that were discovered 100 years ago um so i you know i don't want to say that there hasn't been innovation or scientific discovery since then by any means um and life sciences are a great counterexample to that um but there were i think very foundational discoveries made And what scholars sometimes call the second scientific revolution and we're still the beneficiaries of those discoveries
1: um and i'll add to that tony just i think there's a a really interesting symbiosis of public and private that we see historically take the transistor for example Right, so the transistor is is in, co-invented at Bell Labs, the Industrial Research Lab of AT and AT and has so much money in the bank because it's a regulated monopoly. It basically has, you know, the the license to deliver a universal telephone telephone service and make money doing it, but also is is also limited from doing anything else. It co- continually tries to get out of its lane. That once it has these incredible inventions that are coming out of Bell Labs and commercialize them, and funnily enough, one of the the transistor itself was um, was was one one important piece of this story that that the AT&T is um, constantly trying to get into computing and the DOJ is swatting it back. Um, And one in 1956, a consent decree that was response to AT&T trying to move too far beyond telephony uh, required the company to license the transistor for free and license subsequent related technologies for pretty cheap. And Gordon Moore, he of Moore's Law, um, and I'm sure Brett can talk more about that, um, himself said we would have not had a a silicon semiconductor industry in the Valley without that. And so you have this, you know, and you have the growth of the silicon semiconductor industry itself, private sector growth, but it's facilitated by the Apollo program. It's, It's, you know, government's a major customer. It's also a major instigator of research. So I think going forward, that's a really important thing to recognize that you have in the scientists that um, we were talking about, you know, Vannevar Bush and others, they were not kind of off in their ivory towers. They were like in the west wing of the White House telling Truman and Eisenhower what was what. <laughs> and um, and that is, that that really close relationship is something that is frayed over time that if we really want to rebuild something, we need to look to that model and recognize how these different pieces work together.
0: Uh, Brett, I think every, uh, oh, go, go ahead. To
2: add to that, I think it's really important because you know, bring this sort of nerdy economics into it. The sort of fundamental question here is about whether the government crowds out private innovation or crowds in private innovation. I think the evidence is pretty consistent that it crowds it in. Um, if you look at the NIH, for example, well-identified estimates suggest every $1 of NIH spending leads to $8 of follow, follow on R&D. I think time and time again, there's a complementarity between the government's efforts. And you could sort of think of the government, as, as Margaret said at the beginning, as sort of, you know, putting down the kindling uh, and then the private sector sort of creating the flames, and, and but I think that could not happen with the government putting down the kindling everywhere it did.
0: So, Brett, so is this sort of a, a false choice? I think every two years in a Wall Street Journal, I see something on the editorial page about who invented the internet, and those and those, those op-ed pieces usually reassure, uh, reassure me that it was really the private sector, and, and the government was only a- at the edges, but it seems like Seems like the, again, as Margaret was saying, that the, that the American system, which has worked, has really been both a a, a vigorous public sector, uh, you know, doing a lot of research and and some and sometimes directing that money, uh, but also a very vibrant uh, private sector commercializing those innovations.
4: I think that's right. I I think you need both. Uh, on the internet uh, point in particular, you know, it was uh, you know, ARPA, DARPA. Uh, saying that we needed a new communications idea, decentralized, packet-based maybe. They went out and hired private consultants to start building this, right? So there was a, a germ uh, from the government, from the Pentagon, um, and it was a terrific idea, but it didn't do a whole lot for several decades, right? It connected scientists and engineers, and it really did take the, the entrepreneurial privatized explosion of the mid-'90s uh, than to unleash the full forces, so you could absolutely say it was a uh, it was both. But like so many of these things, um, I want to emphasize that you absolutely do need the entrepreneurial, uh, decentralized uh, efforts in order to uh, to you know to to fully realize the power of these of these ideas. So if you look at I I look at a lot of, at the healthcare. Uh, not to the extent that uh, Dr. Gruber does, but a lot of my research is focused on the absolutely flat productivity growth in healthcare for the last, really as far back as we can measure. At the same time, we have these amazing innovations in genomics and robotics, you know, uh, surgery, and just across the field in healthcare, right? And so I don't know that there's been a lack of sort of research you call it research productivity in in bio, in healthcare and so forth. But there I think has been a real problem in getting those amazing researches into the market in a value oriented uh, way that like the transistor, like the internet, dramatically reduces costs, improves, improves quality for the masses. And that's what we have not seen in healthcare despite uh, amazing scientific and technological advances. So you need it all. You need the NIH, um, you need hospitals, you need universities doing research, but you also need that transmit transmission mechanism of you know, thousands or millions of entrepreneurs uh, tinkering with those ideas, coming up with their own ideas, and then delivering uh, explosive products that uh, really can change the industry. And that's what I'm looking for is in an interview
0: Now, the uh, sort of the uh, the killer stat I mentioned in the intro was that big decline in federal research spending uh, really by two thirds. Now, granted a lot of that, uh, a good chunk of that was the space program, but still you had these decades in the 50s and 60s, very fast growth, a lot of optimism, a lot of technological optimism, a lot of economists back then certainly thought that there was gonna be very fast growth, you know, basically forever. And then we just kind of, then we stopped spending as much on what, was, is a pretty key part of it as we just as we just discovered uh, or talked about science research why did why did not we keep spending a lot if it's if, if that seemed to be working i mean people had to realize at the time that we were spending a lot on on research why did we stop doing it and then it kind of st- dropped off with the apollo program kind of went flat and then it dropped off again i think in the in the 2000s why has this not been a, a bigger priority why did we let this happen
2: you know in in, in my book with simon johnson jump starting america we Offer three reasons. So I'm going to go first and see how Mark, and, and then I'll let the historian fact check me. <laughs> um, so, so, She's we, eager. We, we, we have three reasons. The first reason is that politicians and scientists stopped rowing in the same direction. That when there was a common enemy in the form of Hitler or Sputnik or the moon, they could get together and row in the same direction. But when they started disagreeing about Vietnam and scientists started saying, wait a second, we don't need supersonic aircraft. Uh, and uh, you led to politicians saying, wait a second, I don't want to, I don't, you know, what am I getting out of you anyway? And stop respecting the scientific opinion. Uh, the second um, issue was uh, really we call in the book, I'm mean, gonna use this term a little bit the, the, the hubris of, of scientists in the sense that scientists, you know, literally started worrying about how electricity would free be free and we'd have a nuclear pen and sort of downplayed radiation poisoning and downplayed some of the side effects of what they were doing. And then Silent Spring was a real turning point in that when Rachel Carson, who had actually been a very pro-science reporter, uh, put her book out talking about sort of the unknown damages of of pesticides. I think it made people realize that science wasn't the sort of universal good that maybe scientists had pitched it as. And then finally, and probably most important I'll say as a public finance economist, is budgetary pressures. Um, We had uh, two things happen. One is we had enormous spending increases from the Vietnam War and then the introduction of great society programs. And then with Ronald Reagan coming in, or we had the anti whether he's the cause or the effect we can debate. But the bottom line is starting about 1980, we had a massive anti-tax revolution in the US. And the share of our economy that's raised in taxes has fallen by about 4% since Ronald Reagan came into office. Uh, That's a lot of money. Um, And so in a world where we have these mandatory spending programs like social security and Medicare, which have to get paid every year, a declining tax base um, the discretionary programs uh, get shrunk and R and D is in that category. How do you do, Margaret?
1: Perfect. Three out of three. <laughs> I totally agree. And and I think it's a reminder of we're very much working through, you know, so much has been shaped by this sort of late 60s, early 70s moment of um, the guns and butter problem created by Vietnam. You know, look, all of this is really expensive. And even while America was trying to shoot the moon, there was plenty of contemporaneous criticism over, shouldn't we be spending money on other things here on the planet, right? That, that this is real. And it was a very high tax, very high tax, high spend moment. Moment. And um, and with the kind of crisis of confidence in American leadership that first Vietnam and then Watergate and then the broader kind of temperament of the 60s in the U.S. and globally, it, it is you know the scientists themselves get you know go from being these trusted advisors, these people that Eisenhower called my scientists, um, to someone you know to to people that are no longer you know that, that presidents from Nixon forward of both parties did not you know, did not embrace quite as quickly. And there's this real revolt against expertise for for, right. for good reason, for excesses of of science and technology and and, and techno optimism that proves not to be good for the, for the population or the planet um and and all of these and it's very expensive this is something this is spending lots of money on things that don't immediately have a commercial application it's very hard to build political momentum for it why did we spend so much money before it was the cold war it was all you know war <laughs> it turns out is a very good you know reason it, it that builds political momentum if you have a geopolitical threat so i think that's another challenge for right now is understanding where, where does this fit into the many competing priorities?
0: So we're gonna, we're gonna uh, be talking a few moments uh, about the wisdom of spending a lot more money on research, how, it's, how, how it should be spent exactly, where it should be spent, um, but maybe a little bit on the why uh, it, sh- it should be spent. What did we sort of miss out on? What have we missed out on by not spending that much on science research over the past half century 40 years. Uh, would we be would we be way more technologically advanced today had we kept that spending at nearly, you know, not maybe not on the space program anymore, but on something else at, at 2% of GDP as opposed to where it is now? Is there just all this progress that we kind of like left on the table?
4: Well, you could you could say not spending, but I think the budget, you know, the others explained why pretty well, especially the budgetary pressures. Uh, or you could say misspending i could use in some cases right and it's easy for us now 2020 hindsight looking back but i would just say for the past 40 years physicists have been studying string theory right that's been the big thing i'm not sure what that we have much to show for that uh, and i think people are finally starting to realize that maybe that was a dead end maybe we should have uh, branched out in other directions sooner can i say that we would have found something uh, bigger better if we would have you know uh, dedicated some of those dollars to some other uh, possibilities I can't say that but I do think we need to be better about um, uh, allocating not letting money get uh, funneled so uh, uh, directly into certain research paths that aren't uh, aren't bearing fruit
3: yeah I would add here that um, I think one you know we've talked about the trend where you essentially have the government seeding its its lead on R&D spending. Um, But I think one of the aspects of that, which I think is very significant, is often overlooked, is that um, it's well known that industry, the private sector has picked up the slack there, right? So now the the ratio is sort of flipped and and, the majority of R&D spending is the private sector. But what's happened because of that flip um, is an eclipse, in particular, of basic scientific research um and you know, even even the majority of government spending on r d skews toward the applied research and development side not only within dod but um once you have that ratio inverted um you know the vast majority of private sector research is not basic and there's reason to think that even what the private sector categorizes as basic research is not really basic research and i know that there are disagreements about this term and whether we can even talk about basic versus applied science and so on but i do think um, that that uh, shift toward more uh, use-driven research is, is significant. Um, and it may be part of the reason why we have some of the problems that we have. And I would, again, point back to the historical precedent where uh, uh, basic scientific research uh, generated, uh, you know, often in unpredictable ways, enormous practical returns on investment. Um, and I, you know, sort of counter to the string theory example, I would say is in the life sciences, where we are, you know, comparatively strong in basic science through NIH, uh, which funds an enormous amount of basic scientific research. Eighty percent of which is done extramurally, outside of the NIH campuses. Um, We have, you know, in the past half century, had really important breakthroughs there um, that have generated all kinds of uh, positive uh, technological uh, feedbacks uh, and innovations. But I would say that 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 is an important part of it, It, and actually related to this um, it gets to the historical. Uh, question, that uh, 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 Jim, you were asking earlier about um, you know, what changed, um, and I, I agree that the 60s, that era, when there was this kind of backlash against um, science, part of the story there, I think, is that a lot of the scientific research was being done through the DoD, um, not all, NASA is a great uh, counterexample, the, the NASA research was framed around national, uh, in, you know, sort of national interest, um, vis-a-vis, you know, Cold War, and so on. Um, but that was not, going back to Vannevar Bush, that was, for example, not the intention of Vannevar Bush. Um, one of the things that he worried about in the, as World War II ended was the military retaining control of scientific research. And so I've often wondered if, had he been more successful in that effort um, of, of prioritizing civilian science, um, there, it may have lessened some of the backlash that, uh, that uh, happened in the subsequent decades. But that's, you know, that's speculative. It's
0: certainly an amazing coincidence, though. That we've, we've had this long-term decline in uh, science research spending. And just about the same time, we sort of had this downshift in productivity gro- growth. Uh, Jonathan, one, are they, and then I want you to t- talk to me about your plan, but is, can I link those two things together in any way?
2: You know, I, I think it really comes to your excellent question, Jim, which was one thing we struggled with the most in writing our book, which is how do you prove the absence of something? Uh, how do you prove what would have happened if we had spent the money? Um, I think one way you prove that is you look at what happened in other countries that did spend the money and you look at examples like we show in our book of industries that were born in the US that we gave up on. Take the great example, very relevant well now, of synthetic biology, invented at MIT, funded by the NSF. We invented synthetic biology. We created the first important synthetic biology product, which is uh, a, a uh, synthetic treatment for malaria, um, and then the NSF stopped funding it. They decided the government decided it wouldn't fund it anymore. It's now a major growing industry and job creator in other parts of the world. You can see it's an industry over, over again. So I, I think you can see that. I, 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 but I think you know Margaret raised a really important point. This is expensive, and this is you have to take a portfolio approach. The thing that we did. I don't know how we got away with it. The thing we did in the 50s and 60s, we spread money around and there were a bunch of failures. There was a bunch of string theory, a bunch of stuff that didn't work. And a few things worked. And basically, this is the way private investors make their money. You know, venture capitalists earn 70% of their money on 7% of their investments. You know, basically, the question is, how can we get the government to take that portfolio approach to be able to spend big? You know, a great example right now, Jim, is what we have to do with vaccines. And we see it. We need to invest in lots of different vaccines for COVID. Even though we only need one to work, but the way you get there and you get there quickly is you invest in a lot. At the end of the day, you know if you spend 100 billion dollars, who cares on something that's costing the global economy 350 billion dollars a month? You spend big and 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 you're willing to take the risks. And I think it's clear if we'd done more of that, would have grown faster. Drawing the link is super hard. Uh, you know, drawing the link, there is strong evidence. Um, if you look at, for example, John Van Reenen's work. Uh, which has shown strong evidence of using well-identified econometric strategies of high rates of return to R&D spending, uh, and he has a recent paper looking at defense R&D spending that showed important effects on growth and job creation. So the evidence is out there, uh, but you know, asking how much the productivity slowdown is due to R&D—that's that's hard.
0: Now uh, you would like you have a plan, so uh, uh, so so give me the, uh, the the short version of your plan. How much do you want to spend? and how exactly, because uh, I believe Tony mentioned we have basic research, applied research, mission-oriented uh, research. So, How much do you want to spend? Where do you want to spend it?
2: Okay, so uh, the short version of our, and once again, this is with Simon Johnson and yes. we developed this in our book. Mm-hmm. Um, the short version of our plan is a three-prong plan. Uh, the first prong is the massive historic investment, not historic, but recent history investment in R&D. So the U.S. currently spends about 0.6% of GDP on public R&D, leaving us 12th in the world, we would raise that by half a percent of GDP, moving us up to second or third in the world, uh, depending on how you count things. Um, that's about a trillion dollars over 10 years. Uh, we estimate that that kind of investment, based on past economic research, could create 4 million new jobs uh, and could go a long way towards bringing us back towards more rapid growth. Um, so and. Coming to Tony's question, is it applied? Is it basic? The answer is yes to all. This is Margaret's point. You take lots of bets in lots of areas. You do a lot more basic research, but you also pay attention to applicate to application of that research. In particular, you pay attention to solving the Valley of Death, the the fundamental problem that right now, investors, early stage investors like venture capitalists, only want to invest in new apps. They don't want to invest in new fundamental technologies, and you have to solve that problem through promoting things like this the SBIR program, which is a bipartisan program. Indeed, Marco Rubio wants to double the size of the SBIR program. It's a government loan program. So you invest all over the place. That's step one. Step two is to recognize that both public and private investors have had a strong bias towards a small set of coastal superstar cities. As, as folks at, at, at Brookings have shown, uh, 90% of all the new high-tech jobs have arisen in about 10 cities across the US over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, that's due to both private VC, where two thirds is concentrated in five cities, and public R&D, which has been following the Vannevar Bush model. Great man, but elitist. You know, it all went to the very top elite coastal universities. Um, we need to recognize that there's a lot of opportunities around our country. A lot of lost Einsteins out there, who with funding could actually create great new ideas. And we need to spread that around our country. We, in our book, uh, denote 102 places which are highly educated have excellent universities and have a low cost of living, which could be next generation tech hubs. So the second part of our three-pronged plan is to hold a competition, to follow Amazon, which had a competition for its HQ2, but instead of the competition being about who can give it the biggest tax break, instead the competition about who can be the next tech hub to, to have a competition and have a public commission, nonpartisan commission, decide where to throw some money to train tech hubs. Not the whole billion dollars, we're very clear. Most of the billion is given out through typical mechanisms but a dedicated share. And then finally, we think there needs to be mechanisms for ensuring the returns to this new innovation return to the public sector. You know, Some have talked about public ownership, like Marina Mazzucato, we're not sure, we like that. Another way to do is to recognize if you can create new tech hubs, that's gonna raise the value of land a lot. Let's capture the excess return to that land and redistribute that to people. We need mechanisms to capture that. The good news, Jim, is that policymakers are listening to us. And indeed, there's a bill out there right now called the Endless Frontiers Act, mm-hmm. a bipartisan, bicameral bill. Chuck Schumer and Ro Khanna on the Democratic side and Senators Young and Representative Gallagher on the Republican side have put together a bill which is a to $100 billion, $110 billion over five years, which has a lot of these elements. It's a lot of money to R&D, but it also has $10 billion create, into creating new tech hubs. Um, so there's some interest in this. Um, we think the scale should be big. As Margaret said, you got to spend a lot of money to make this work. But that, in a nutshell, is sort of what we lay out.
0: Um, the uh, uh, Just a few pieces of that. Do we have evidence that we can create tech hubs through very smart planning and the direction of, of resources? Is there evidence that that's possible? There's I know we, right.
2: evidence. There's absolutely evidence that the government initiative can create Tech hubs, and so I. I know of- we've I know Silicon
0: Valley. Is there is, no, no, is there no, no. a second? Okay. Is there a second okay. one?
2: My favorite example in the book, and I'll ask this. Obviously, people can't respond on this, but I'll ask everyone to be be on the honor system. I'll ask a question, which currently I've asked about twenty three hundred people, and seventeen have gotten right. So don't feel bad if you get this wrong. Don't yell out the answer, and if, and if you read the book, you know this already. Which city in America is the home, the worldwide home of the computer simulation industry, and the home of the largest university by enrollment in our country? And people have guessed all over, but the answer is Orlando, Florida. Now, that might come to surprise to you. Well, what happened? What happened? You know, we go through the story in detail in the book, but basically Lyndon Johnson's a political favor, put a Navy base in Orlando. Now, what do you do with a landlocked Navy base? You train people, including battle simulation. Uh, The University of Central Florida in 1978, which was sort of a mid-sized mediocre university, had the innovative idea of taking the battle simulation unit off the Navy base and putting it below the university and building a research park around it. Now today, the Central Florida Research Park has 10,000 jobs and East Orlando, 45 minutes from Disney, has added 100,000 jobs in 30 years. Um, uh, and Meanwhile, the University of Central Florida is now the largest university by enrollment. They have a great basketball team, as you know, um, and uh, they have the 10th ranked electrical engineering department in the country. So this can happen. now. We are proposing something new. This happened through sort of a political favor. We don't want it to happen that way. We think that's a mistake. And the fundamental challenge is how do you overcome the politics? How do you make sure that tech hubs aren't just put, you know, you know we all know about, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, um, you know, is, 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 is there through political favors. Other things are there, our other tech hubs came from political favors. We'd like to have an apolitical process. There is an example of doing that which is a reverse example, which is the Base Closing Commission. We all remember House of Cards Season 1. That's what it's testifying in front of. The Base Closing Commission, that faced an even harder challenge, which is how do you close military bases? They set up an apolitical commission, which did that. We'd like to think you can set up a similar apolitical expert process to open tech hubs. But we admit this is new. This is a new frontier, to quote, uh, to quote Vannevar Bush. And we don't, we we raised the possibility, but we think there's a lot of work to be done to make sure you get this right.
0: Let me ask for, first, Brett uh, 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 and Tony, um, how confident are you? Uh, uh, do you like do you like this plan? Would you change this plan? And do you have a lot of and what? And has the government's response to this virus over the past few months given you more or less confidence in their ability to execute on sort of <laughs> complicated uh, uh, research plans? Very good
4: question. I've got a bunch of responses. I think the plan has potential. I want to be open to it. I'm sympathetic to a lot of parts of it. Just some sort of questions, right? So not denying the benefits of clusters and agglomeration. I think those things will continue to be important. Uh, People gathering and bouncing ideas off each other, right? On the other hand, there are a bunch of tools that we have now, Uh, the internet cloud computing, that allow us to do amazingly powerful decentralized research. You mentioned simulations, right? Where now people across the globe can tap into AWS or Azure or whatever and have this amazing power at their fingertips. Mm. Similarly, now that those types of simulation uh, methodologies are, are going into bio, right? I can run uh, bio simulations on computers now instead of in giant labs. Now that's not for everything, we'll still need lab labs and so forth, but that's one point that I do think that the power of decentralization uh, is a factor. So whether we need physical hubs like we used to know them, I'm not sure. Uh, being from Indiana, I certainly uh, recognize the local economic development benefits, however, of seeing more places uh, uh, achieve what we've done on the coast. So I'm, I'm, I'm for that. So sure, the last couple months, indeed the last, you know, number of decades could teach you the lesson that centralized bureaucracies um, maybe haven't, you know, done the best thing. I mean, we, here's an example from healthcare again, right? We, we very quickly sequenced the genome Of this virus right the rna and and it spread across the world the code but the cdc and fda wouldn't let these decentralized people including at the university of washington um, you know produce the tests that they knew how to make and so that's of course more of an applied question but um i do think that even those people that are very open to dr gruber's plan and other like it are gonna have, they have an uphill battle to gain the political support.
2: So uh, uh, it's okay, Jim, if I respond?
0: Uh, yeah, p- uh, please. Okay, sure.
2: uh, Brett, those are great points. So l- l- let me respond to each of them. So one, you've raised a real interesting point, which is, you know, is agglomeration dead? Now that we're all on Zoom, uh, mm-hmm. is this the death of agglomeration? Look, if agglomeration was gonna die, it would have died. I mean, basically we've had the internet, we've had cheap flights, uh, it's gotten stronger. Yep. Agglomeration's gotten stronger. So I don't think is the death of agglomeration. I, I I could be wrong, but um I, I think we'll be surprised five years from now at, at how little this affects the forces of agglomeration. Um uh I, I think they will continue. They've continued strongly, and and and, and they will continue. Um I, I think you the other question you raised, Brett, is kind of you know could something like this really get traction? Um as I said, I'm pleased that there's a bill out there. It's getting traction. But the other point, you know, it comes back to your point about Indiana, which is when we talk about spreading the R&D wealth, in some sense, we think you can argue what both sides of whether that's productive or not. Some could say, oh, you know, my elitist colleagues here in Cambridge say, oh, all the smart people are in Cambridge, you shouldn't give the money in Indiana. Um, uh, others could say, well, look at the cost of doing research in Cambridge, it's three times as high as Indiana. So even if you're one-third as productive in Indiana, it's still a better use of dollars. So you could argue that both ways, what I think you can't argue is the politics, which is if we, if, if we just continue to say, let's give more money to Cambridge and Berkeley, it's not going to pass. But if you tie it with recognizing that we can spread this wealth around the country, that there's and not in a purely restrictive way, we're not talking about Appalachia. We're talking about real, honest to goodness, highly educated places that can be tech hubs that, but for the fact Bill Gates was born in Seattle, Seattle wouldn't be a tech hub. Okay, they are places that can be tech hubs. And by recognizing that that maybe you can bring together a coalition of local people on the country who want the jobs with scientists who realize the need for the R&;D.
0: Um, Tony, when you hear this plan, are you concerned that once this also filters so, sort of through the political system, that there'll be a lot of money spent on what are, whatever the sort of hot take concern of the time is, whether it's 5G, or making sure we can compete, you know, right? Compete with Huawei or chip making, whatever, whatever it is, and and creating that kind of vast reservoir of science, you know, that just doesn't seem as you know as interesting uh, or as pressing as whatever sort of the uh, again sort of the, the concern of the moment is.
3: Yeah, well, I guess I, I would, let me let me preface by saying that I I too am uh, uh, sympathetic with a lot of the motivations of that bill, and I'm I, I want to be open to it, and there are aspects of it that I like. Um, I think on the centralization point, for example, one of the the virtues of that bill is that it it does take the Bush idea of funneling money through the university system, take leveraging our decentralized research establishment, of course it does it by looking at, uh, technology rather than basic science, which is very, very un-Bushian, um, and doing it through NSF, um, which is also quite ironic because that was the, uh, the agency created in, uh, you know, partly uh, because of Bush's, um, efforts. Um, whose you know primary purview is basic basic science, I, but I think the issue um, that you raise, uh, Jim, it, it speaks to a kind of broader concern of mine, which is um, it, it's not merely a matter of money, right? So I think think about the historical case. You can look at uh, you know, federal R and D spending uh, during World War II and after, and we can talk about uh, you know the drop off of that and look at productivity drop off, and and I and I'm very sympathetic with the idea that that uh, that R&D funding is 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 valuable um, the, but the question is why why was it valuable um, and so it's not enough to just look at the expenditure it also you have to look at the underlying scientific discoveries and innovations that made things possible you could give a lot of money um, to a lot of scientists uh, they could have some interesting ideas but if there wasn't a broader infrastructure in which to transfer that um knowledge to to make it actionable uh, to have the kind of feedbacks that we were talking about between sci- scientists on engineers and people working in the private sector and so on, then it wouldn't amount to much. And similarly, you could imagine giving a lot of money to engineers um, without uh, supporting the scientific underlying of that um, and and kind of expanding the existing technological frameworks we have, uh, but not doing anything truly um, uh, innovative uh in in the sense of you know the kinds of foundational uh, inventions that we have referenced in the course of this conversation so i think sort of the the content of the research does matter Um, and and you can see this in the post-war period where you it's i this issue of attributing causality is 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 notoriously thorny but you know many of the sectors that are documented to have flourished after the war are traceable to, to federal R&D spending in the relevant areas. But if you look at what those sectors are, they're also the sectors where we had tremendous scientific advances, in many, in many of those advances before the war. My point is that you did need the money and you needed the organized research, but you also needed a broader ecosystem of discovery and invention. One that, that depends in very crucial respects on, on science as opposed to technology. Um, and so I worry that in some of the framing of our current policy debates, we're, we're neglecting that uh, and I see that in the Endless Volunteers Bill. So as you pointed out, you then get the, the problem that um, if we emphasize um, only the uh, the kind of, the, the, the use the, the directed aspect of research, we tend to then focus on the kind of fashionable I- issues of the moment. So if you do a thought experiment, if, if it was 1900 and the, the federal government said, uh, or imagine it's 1940, but, uh, uh, but you know, the state of science was where it was in 1900. And the federal government said, we want to build a super weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think they would have directed the money to do that? Uh, the answer would not be, I'm sure, uh, to a patent clerk who wanted to study uh, pollen grains suspended in fluid. Um, but Einstein's work in Brownian motion was key to the development of atomic theory. In 1900, scientists didn't, they were still debating whether or not there were atoms at all. Um, so you can't develop, for example, a nuclear bomb if you don't know that there are atoms, you don't know that there are nuclei, and you don't know about fission if you don't know that there are nuclei. Um, so if you would ask, ask folks in Washington, uh, hey, we would like to develop this super weapon, what should we do with it? And you didn't have the relevant science on hand, uh, it's not obvious what the answer would have been, but I think we can guess that it probably wouldn't have been directed toward the kinds of research that actually wound up being useful. Um, and in fact is uh, we do have uh, some evidence of what the answer would have been because the British government actually did put out a, uh, uh, an award for building a weapon in the lead up to World War II, um, trying to use uh, radio technology. They, they, they essentially wanted to build a ray gun that could kill a sheep from a hundred yards away. Um, but needless to say, that project didn't, didn't go anywhere. Um, so my my worry is that um, not that there is n- I'm not trying to say that there is uh, uh, no value in the the applied technological side of things by any means and I agree that one of the the uh, problems I think that we we face now is that we don't have as much of this feedback between the re- relevant research communities the public and private sectors um, but I worry about trying to pick and choose uh, the horses that we want to ride um, because historical Precedent suggests that the pickers tend not to be sufficiently imaginative uh, in doing that. Margaret, the historical precedent
0: also is that uh, it's helpful if the U.S. sees itself under some sort of—tell me if this is wrong—some sort of threat, uh, a competitive threat, a military threat. So is the fact we have rising China is that sort of? Even though I, a lot of people would be, you know, very happy if you know China was not a factor, isn't that kind of helpful if you think? there are all these discoveries that are yet to be made and we need that kind of catalyst. So we just won't spend the money.
1: I agree. Um, And and, I mean, China, you know, this Cold War is very different from the other Cold War. And and I think what makes it tricky technologically is we already have closely intertwined systems. Um, Whereas the Soviets, you know, in the case of say, Soviet computing and US computing, they were two completely different silos, right? Two different ecosystems. And we have a, we're very already bound up um, economically, but I think that you know this one piece of this larger conversation. I think what the um, what Jonathan's plan and the sort of questions about where tech grows and how you how you grow it and what you invest in, it's not just about the technology or the science itself. It's about the people who do it, right? It's about human capital production. It's about talent and where the talent is and how you foster talent. And that's actually a really big piece of the Cold War push that was, again, driven by freaking out about (laughs) the threat of the Soviet threat. So much of the conversation in the early 1950s as the Cold War is ramping up is that the Soviets are producing so many more scientists, so many more PhDs in science, so many more technologists and engineers, that it was a numbers game. And this became an impetus for immense investment in higher education. That was, you know, and there was already a big public investment in higher ed um, in, in form of the GI Bill, which was growing the the college population significantly. But I think that's really important. I was so struck when I was putting the book together, when I was sitting down and talking with these venture capitalists and technologists in their 80s and 90s, um, who, have, who have done very well for themselves at the end of their lives, but they started off as young men with two cents to their name. They ended up, you know, this the first generation in the valley was made up primarily of people from very modest backgrounds. If you had family connections, if you went to a prep school, if you had a rich father, you usually stayed on the East Coast and went to go work at, a, you know, on Wall Street or at a Fortune 50 company. People like Bob Noyce, Gordon Moore, Dave Packard, Bill Hewlett. I could go on and on. They're, you know, they're these these guys from small towns whose families are very you know modest backgrounds all these guys have is their engineering smarts and this big public investment gives them this opportunity it creates this escalator of, of upward mobility. And we see this again and again. Steve Jobs, his father didn't graduate high school, but he got a job in the Santa Clara Valley working in the laser industry. And he didn't have a, you know, he didn't have a college degree. but there was this, this opportunity created by all of this spending and the ancillaries, economic activity and all of the degrees that were produced. And I think that's another piece when we think about, okay, how do we make Cleveland into a, a, a bigger tech hub? You know, how do we leverage the, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, or these other places that already have big research universities and, and, and spread the tech tech wealth geographically. It's about people and, and education.
0: Does Silicon Valley, do you think want government to do a lot more or is the attitude
1: we got this. The attitude is we got this. Um uh there is a, you know, uh, and look, it's a really powerful and a really compelling kind of story that Silicon Valley has told about itself as as a as a place that um that actually, you know, when we think about the big companies that drive the Silicon Valley, the the Valley and the Seattle tech economies now, they are They come out of this post-Vietnam generation of technologists who were very consciously turning away from the military industrial complex and turning away from the government generally and saying the less you regulate us the less you tax us the less you get in our business the more we're going to be able to do but there is this foundational role that not only r d spending again on blue sky stuff that no company in its right mind would be spending money on because there's where's the commercial application in the near term not not
0: not google x or anybody like that.
1: no like like, you know look it's fantastic that that billions of dollars are being spent by google and microsoft and these other huge companies awesome But they are publicly traded companies accountable to their shareholders. It's different than a public agency that's accountable to the citizens that has, you know, that is there for ostensibly for a public good. And and industrial research, corporate research plays a critical role in the ecosystem, but that is, it's different. It can't be the only thing we rely on. Nor can we rely on philanthropy, as as massive as the new foundations um, that have come out of tech have are. They're still not anything compared to, you know, the the annual budget of NIH, for example. It's just not. You can't compare it.
4: And,
2: and now, let, let me just. Okay, I'm sorry. Like, go. I think it's really important to build on Margaret's point. Yeah, and and I think uh, uh, Brett or Tony mentioned the sort of inversion that now there's you know, more private, less public R&D, but let's remember they're not the same thing. It's not just that one's about R and one's about D. It's that one's public and one's private. So mm-hmm. corporate scientists used to be some of the leading public intellectuals in our country, corporate scientists win Nobel prizes. Now corporate scientists don't publish. Okay, publications by corporate scientists are down 60% in the last several decades, in particular in high impact areas. So the R&D, yes, there's these exciting new R&D ventures of these companies, but they're turned inwards. They're about returns to that company. They're not about producing general knowledge that allows for more general development of technology.
0: Uh, What is the case for focusing uh, on uh, focusing all this money on existing institutions versus a, a a prize or award style system for breakthroughs and innovations. So, so, so these big kind of X prizes, but I guess uh, much bigger for sort of these, you know, big, big ideas, big breakthroughs. What about doing that instead or, or in addition
4: I think it's an interesting question, and whether it's prizes or a new institution or branching out, I think there's a lot of evidence that across not just our research, uh, you know, community, but institutions in general, I think we've had a lot of sclerosis, right, a lot of um, sort of stuck thinking. I don't think it would be a bad idea to look for new sources, set up new institutions, and maybe that's possibly even part of what Dr. Gruber is thinking with his, you know, regional Uh, diversity uh, program. So I don't think that's a bad idea. And it leads to another point that I wanted to make is that, you know, science is all about pursuing knowledge wherever it takes you. And one thing I'm really worried about, and that I think is going to be important for sustaining political uh, support for this, is that science has to be open-ended. We have to be able to ask questions and find whatever answers it gives us. I think there's an apocryphal quote from you know, Richard Feynman, who knows if you've said it, but it's good, he said, "I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And I'm a little worried that at this moment, especially we're in a, a space where the possible conversations that we have are being constrained and uh, you know especially in science, we, we need to make sure that our researchers and scientists can go uh, uh, you know wherever the, the science leads them.
1: I have a yes and answer here, which is yes. I think prizes and big centerpiece initiatives have a, a, can jumpstart things. Everything from John Kennedy saying we will reach the moon by the end of this decade, to um, you know DARPA's the DARPA prize for autonomous vehicles that kind of got all those all these teams competing with each other and really advanced the state of the art. But it's also systemic. I mean, we can, I think part of what, you know, what do we want a national science complex to do and accomplish? I think we, you know, what can public pop- policy do? Can it, as Jonathan's proposing, you know, decentralize or even out this intense concentration of tech wealth and productivity in, in two, you know, two parts ends of the country and create opportunity for a broader number of people to get more people able to be part of science and technology, to diversify it, and also to make it, again, a a pathway for for upward mobility for people, these amazing, you know, these entrepreneurs, this entrepreneurial talent that's going untapped. Um, And that requires systemic change. It requires kind of reevaluating and re- re-empowering science and reinstituting things like, you know, the Office of Technology Assessment, which was a bipartisan entity advising Congress for two and a half decades on
3: mm-hmm.
1: on matters of, of, you know, future tense matters, everything from acid rain to um, supercomputing and everything in between. You know, again, these aren't kind of politically fashionable, and these aren't, you know, this rather than just certain parts of the public.
3: Uh, sec, go ahead. I was going to say on, on that question, I think what that raises is the important issue of what we're, you know, what our current uh, R&D uh, system is not doing well. Where are the current inefficiencies and problems? And we've talked about the, uh, uh, the geographic distribution problem, but there are lots of other problems, too, and they may feed into that geographic one. Um, and so, again, this goes back to my worry about merely spending money. We have to think about how that money is being spent. You know, there's a lot of research on the amount of time that scientists have to spend on paperwork, bureaucratic compliance. Um, there are lots of worries about uh, the peer review process. Some of these problems are internal to the higher education academia. Um, some of them are on the government side or combination. Um, you know, in, in- entrenched institutions uh, absorbing a lot of the, uh, the grants that come out of the government. Um, so I think there's a whole host of issues that we need to think through before we know how best to start funneling the money through the system. Um, because if, if the system isn't working well, putting a bunch of money into it may or may not be helpful. Um, even though I would, uh, in the main, like to see more uh, more funding.
0: Um, my, my, my second uh, Twitter question, then we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here with this. Uh, can America continue to be innovative if it is hostile to immigration and the flow of foreign talent into US universities? Can we just do it, our, do it ourselves? You now that, that kid of yours who wants to be a YouTube influencer, well guess what, now you're gonna be an AI scientist.
2: I mean, I, I think, look, once again, it comes back to Margaret's made the most important point of this event, which is it's just, we just gotta put a lot of money in and we don't have to choose. We can have YouTube influencers and AI scientists. We need to put in, we need to put in the educational skill. And Margaret talked about the National Defense Education Act and the massive educational investment made, not just in higher education, but you talk to anyone who's sort of 60 plus, they'll talk about their NDEA-funded, you know, uh, uh, tele- telescope and things that were in their elementary schools and secondary schools. We take massive investments, and then we're a free country. If people want to be YouTube influencers, great, but we need to put the opportunities in front of them. Would to create the demand for these jobs. Um, I like the idea of prizes, although the problem with prizes doesn't overcome the, st- the problem with financing the actual research. When prizes work, if we have VCs who are interested in actually helping finance the research, but if VCs just want to create the next app and not the next clean energy technology, a prize won't get it done. Um, but I think we need all of the above. And look, you talked about COVID-19. On the one hand, COVID-19 means we're in a bigger debt. On the other hand, COVID-19 points out the enormous scope for spending that we could avoid if we had better technology. I and mean, if we had had been working on a vaccine, we could have saved trillions of dollars. So it really highlights, you know, the fact that this is spending that we need to be doing to get ready for the future.
4: Brett, we need immigrants? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Margaret talked about it before in the, uh, you know, post-war era, but even, the, you know, the obviously the project was, you know, uh, fueled by immigrants and, and, and Silicon Valley is today and, and so many of our entrepreneurs, not just the researchers, are immigrants. So we need, um, we need more of that. I don't I think we, all, we need to sustain the, the support for it politically, right? And um, I think there's a smart way to, to get towards a solution that uh, uh, the, the other point, though, too, and this is, you know, scientific research can be taken from around the world. So that's why I think it's this this entrepreneurial mechanism that, that I've been you know emphasizing is so important is because even if the the research isn't done in the U.S. and I hope it is, even if it doesn't doesn't, we have this ability at least historically to take ideas from anywhere and to create new
3: amazing uh, things with them. Uh, I was, oh, sorry. I just, I was, I'll give you the last word, Tony. <laughs> well, on, on immigration, just uh, I think um, uh, I, I would answer that question with a historical example. Uh, United States in the beginning of the 20th century was scientifically not 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 a particularly well-advanced country compared to Europe. Um, by the mid-century, the um, United States was one of the premier places to do science and especially physics. There are a lot of explanations for that. Some of it was homegrown talent and infrastructure, but a, part of the explanation for that was an infusion of immigration uh leading up to world war ii and during and after world war ii um the number of, of scientists who were part of our research establishment who were foreign born was was significant um not just in terms of numbers but in terms of the talent um so if that's the era that we're looking to uh for inspiration and i think that's a lesson we, we also want to heed my panels from Jonathan Gruber, Tony Mills, Margaret O'Meara,
0: and Brett Swanson. Thank you all for doing it. And that's the end of the panel. Thanks everybody for watching.